0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news and Hoosier law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host.
1: And I'm Olivia Covington, Co-host and Editor of the Indiana Lawyer. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us.
0: Today's show will open with some recent headlines before going into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community.
1: This week's guest is Indiana Senate President Pro Tem, Rod Bray, who recently stopped by our studio to discuss the 2022 legislative session.
0: We've got a great show for you today, so let's get started. Today is March 23rd, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start with some news of national interest. An Indianapolis attorney named Quentin Cantrell was arrested this month for allegedly participating in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. Federal law enforcement arrested Quentin Cantrell, along with two of his relatives, Jared and Eric Cantrell, on March 10th, filing a criminal complaint that alleges four violations of federal law related to the riot. Court documents allege Quentin Cantrell climbed down a wall on the west terrace of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., entered the building, then left about two minutes later. Witnesses identified him from video footage and social media posts that Jared Cantrell created on January 6th. Also, Quentin's cell phone records placed him in the vicinity of the Capitol on that day according to court documents. Contrell appeared before a magistrate judge on March 15th and was appointed counsel, although he intends to hire his own attorney. He's been released to the supervision of the Southern District of Indiana and must appear before a Washington, D.C. magistrate judge on April 19th to discuss his efforts to hire counsel. Like all defendants charged in connection with the Capitol riot, Contrell is banned from traveling to the nation's capital unless it's related to his court case. Contrell was admitted to the Indiana Bar in 2001 and most recently worked at the IP law firm of Woodard, Emmert, Henry, Reeves, and Wagner in Indianapolis, according to the Indiana Roll of Attorneys. However, Woodard Emmert removed Contrell's bio from his website the day after his arrest, so it's possible he no longer works there. The firm did not respond to our request for comment or information about the connection to Contrell. We'll follow this case closely. Check back with our website for periodic updates. Next, Let's head into our final rapid-fire Statehouse update for the 2022 Indiana Legislative Session. Here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington with the rundown.
1: The 2022 session of the Indiana General Assembly adjourned in the early morning hours of March 9th, and Governor Eric Holcomb has been busy since then reviewing and signing dozens of bills that made it to his desk. According to our sister paper, the Indianapolis Business Journal, a total of 177 bills made it to the governor's desk, about 20% of the 849 bills filed. In our extended interview this week with Senate President Pro Tem Rodbray, we discussed some of the session's biggest bills at length. Here's a look at the final standing of a few other bills we've followed this session. First is House Enrolled Act 1004, the bill allowing Level 6 felony offenders who are convicted after June 30th to serve their sentences in the Indiana Department of Correction for mental health and addiction treatment. As a reminder, this bill was a rollback of a previous law requiring Level 6 felony offenders to serve their sentences in their local county jails in most situations. The bill received bipartisan but not unanimous support in both legislative chambers. Governor Eric Holcomb signed it into law on March 8th. It will take effect July 1st. Next is Senate Enrolled Act 70, which creates a Level 5 felony obstruction of justice offense if a person induces a witness to give a false or materially misleading statement during a domestic violence or child abuse case. The bill also creates a uniform definition of the word communicates for the criminal code, defining it to mean making a statement to another person directly, indirectly, or through an intermediary by any medium, including in person, in writing, electronically, on social media, or telephonically. SEA 70 was signed on March 7th and is now known as Public Law 5. On March 15th, Holcomb signed House Enrolled Act 1300, a bill preventing charitable bail organizations from bailing out a defendant charged with a violent crime or a defendant who is charged with a felony and who has a prior conviction for a crime of violence. The ban on charitable bail applies to groups that bail out more than three people in 180 days. HEA 1300 also incorporates language from Senate Bill 6 and 8, which addressed bail for violent arrestees and nonprofit bail funding. Senate Bill 6 and 8 both died in the Indiana House. Last is Senate Enrolled Act 7, which establishes a crime reduction board in Marion County. The IBJ reports that SEA 7 also includes language from Senate Bill 10, which creates a pilot program to distribute funds to high-crime areas to cover law enforcement overtime. Senate Bill 10 had died in the Indiana House.
0: Thanks, Olivia. On a related note, just before the General Assembly adjourned this month, Republican lawmakers sent a letter to Governor Eric Holcomb asking him to call a special session if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion decision. You likely remember that SCOTUS is considering a case out of Mississippi that, according to some Supreme Court watchers, could fully or partially overturn Roe in the related abortion case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The federal justices heard arguments in the Mississippi case in December, and many expect its decision to come down before the current term ends in June. In the letter, the GOP lawmakers asked Holcomb to call the session, quote, at the earliest date practicable if Roe is overturned, in whole or in part. They say a decision to overturn the landmark abortion rulings would, quote, expand Indiana's ability to protect unborn children. Stick around for our extended interview with Indiana Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray to hear why the legislature didn't act on the abortion issue during the regular 2022 session. Switching over to court news, we have some guidance to share from the Indiana Judicial Qualifications Commission and the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission. With election season just around the corner, the JQC is offering advice to judicial candidates on complying with Judicial Canon 4, which prohibits candidates from engaging in campaign activity that is inconsistent with the independence, integrity, or impartiality of the judiciary. Tackling questions like whether a candidate can comment on an opponent's qualifications, positions, or performance, the JQC advised that, quote, when engaging in campaign conduct and speech about opponents, judges and judicial candidates must be cognizant of their duties to protect the integrity, independence, and impartiality of the judiciary, End quote. In practice, that means judicial candidates must be fair, accurate, truthful, and factual, and their comments must be pertinent to the office while not unfairly challenging an opponent's partiality. For its part, the Disciplinary Commission has released guidance on how to avoid so-called minefields when it comes to lawyers making public comments on pending legal matters, particularly on social media. The Commission identified five key minefields to avoid. Commenting on inadmissible evidence or credibility. Commenting on prejudicial matters outside the public record. Expressing opinions on the guilt of a defendant or suspect. Commenting on matters extending beyond exception. And creating reactive posts. It pointed to Indiana Rules of Professional Conduct 1.6, 3.6, and 3.8 as guidance for avoiding these pitfalls, with a special emphasis on Rule 3.6. The full advisory opinions, which include an analysis of the relevant rules, are available on our website. Moving to the federal courts, I recently wrote about a court decision that could fundamentally change the way voters with visual disabilities vote in Indiana elections. Earlier this month, the Indiana Southern District Court ruled that traveling voter boards, which are commonly used to reach print-disabled voters who can't vote at the polls, are now permissive in Indiana, rather than mandatory. Why does that matter? Well, according to the plaintiffs in the federal lawsuit, traveling voter boards aren't always conducive to the election process. One plaintiff was never able to vote in the 2020 presidential election because the traveling voter board never came to her home. Another plaintiff didn't get to complete her own ballot in 2020, because the traveling board asked her mother to do it. That defeated the purpose of a secret ballot, according to disability rights advocates. When traveling voter boards were mandatory for visually impaired voters, the plaintiffs say, they had no other options, but making them permissive creates more opportunities to vote. The federal court's ruling wasn't a total win for the plaintiffs, as Judge Jane Magnus Stinson denied summary judgment on other issues. But the plaintiff still celebrated the decision, saying the move to permissive traveling boards gets rid of one of the country's most restrictive rules. In her order, Magnus Stinson ordered the state defendants to gather data on voters with print disabilities in Indiana and report back to her on the state's efforts to accommodate those voters before the May 3rd primary. Next up, Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe gives us an inside look at the new Marion County Community Justice Campus. Plus, An update on the timeline for the court's move to the new courthouse on the Twin Air complex. Katie, what can you tell us?
2: I got the chance to check out the new Marion County Community Justice Campus earlier this month when Marion Superior presiding judge Amy Jones hosted a media tour of the new facility. We were joined by Court Administrator Emily Van Osdell and Marion Superior Judge Mark Rothenberg. The new facility will serve as home to Marion County Courts and has a whopping 71 courtrooms to be split between 36 Superior Judges, one Circuit Court Judge, and 45 Magistrate Judges. This is the first time that all of the Marion Superior Court operations will be consolidated into the same location. State-of-the-art technology was incorporated throughout the new facility, including navigation kiosks available for guests who need help getting around the new building. Users can also search for case information and daily docket scheduling. Another new feature includes up-to-date digital evidence presentation available in all of the standard courtrooms. Facility users will also use keycard swipes instead of regular keys. One perk for litigants and attorneys alike is the Legal Resource Center. It has more than a dozen computers that can be used for legal research and to fill out various forms for things like expungements or divorce. Here's Judge Jones talking to reporters about what else the space could be used for. We're able to work with, you know, various community groups. You know, if they do provide some sort of like pro bono legal services, they can have ask a lawyer in here or somebody will be here. They can have office hours. We'll be able to work and schedule times with various groups that can come in and provide that service. Ensuring judicial fairness was also key in the creation of the new Justice Campus. Van also said that some litigants might have had cases in multiple locations throughout the county in the past. Designers made sure that streamlined services with remote hearings were kept in mind to make this building more efficient. Here's Van Osdell telling reporters all about it. The
1: pandemic forced us to do those things faster than we intended, but you know, people for you know a short hearing might not have to leave their job or find childcare, you know, they can log in remotely we have the technology to do
2: those things easier. The courts' formal move to the new facility will start on April 19th, and the court office will make its official transition on April 29th. Jury trials will continue to take place at the City-County Building until full operations begin at the Community Justice Campus on May 9th. Back to you, Jordan.
0: Thanks, Katie. Let's wrap up with a preview of a story I'm working on for the intellectual property focus section in the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. On July 1, 2021, the NCAA changed its policy to allow all Division I, II, and III athletes to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness, after the Supreme Court of the United States upheld the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision in NCAA versus Alston. Since then, it has become, as one lawyer described it to me, the wild, wild west, as college athletes look to finally get paid. A recent white paper study done by Front Office Sports and Open Doors estimated that $579 million will be spent on NIL deals in the first 12-month period ending in July of 2022 alone. With no state laws in place in Indiana regarding NIL, I spoke with several attorneys about what they're currently seeing as it regards to IP law and where we might be going in the future. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com for more on these stories and any other news from the Indiana legal profession. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear a conversation with Indiana Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray about the results of the 2022 legislative session.
3: Taft. Today's modern law firm at Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters
0: creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. As a quick note to our listeners, this interview was conducted before Governor Eric Holcomb vetoed the bill banning transgender girls from participating in girls' sports and signing a bill that eliminates the requirement for open carry handgun permits. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray in the studio with us today. Senator Bray, thanks so much for joining us. All right,
3: thanks for having me.
0: As a brief background, Senator Bray has represented District 37, which includes all of Morgan County and parts of Johnson, Owen, and Putnam Counties since 2012. In 2018, Senate Republicans selected him as Senate Pro Tem. As our readers and listeners well know, the state legislature recently wrapped up its 2022 session. But before we get into the weeds of the past few months, uh, I want to start with another topic of particular interest to our listeners, your work as an attorney. So if you would, uh, please tell us about your practice and how it led you into politics.
3: Well, so um, you know, I've been practicing for about 27 years now. Started out as a deputy prosecutor in Morgan County and uh, really enjoyed that job. Then went into private practice for about 10 years with a firm in Mooresville, and now I've been in a family firm with my father now for uh, since about 2003. And uh, uh, you know, it, I did a lot of municipal work, worked with counties, cities, uh, planning commissions, things of that nature. I've always been interested in politics, and when the seat opened up, it just seemed like a, a, a fit that was right for me to try for. Mm-hmm.
1: Was your father also a senator? Is that correct?
3: Yeah, he was. I've got a little political history in my background. My grandfather was in the United States Congress from 50 to '74, and My father was in the General Assembly as well before me. Okay, interesting.
0: So how do you balance the two?
3: It's a challenge, right? Uh, You you balance your law practice, balance what you're doing in the Indiana Senate, and also have a family that wants to see me from time to time. And so... (laughs) Uh, it's a constant challenge, but it even even just in private practice, that's a, a busy challenge because everybody knows a law practice takes every hour you give it, and then asks for another. And uh, uh, but it's a it's a happy challenge. I enjoy all of uh, all of those activities. The, the bottom line now, especially in my position as president pro tem, I just simply practice less law. Uh, you know, I've had to let a few clients go. The clients I do have kind of understand what I'm doing, are relatively happy that I'm there and, and, you know, trying to contribute to the success of the state of Indiana. So they're on some uh, some level patient, but as most attorneys will understand they still need the work to get done. And so, uh, you know, I do some work on the weekends. On Fridays, we're n- not in session, so I do a lot of work on Fridays to try and catch up and keep things moving, and having a good staff is imperative.
1: All right, so let's move into session, and we'll dive in with the big one, 1001. Yeah. So, of course, what was passed was you know, a little less, it packed less of a punch than what was initially presented. So do you think what we ended up with goes far enough to protect both employers and employees on the COVID vaccine issue?
3: Yeah, I think so. It was a real challenge to be trying to navigate that and, you know, really just thread a needle uh, to, to so, so that people can be protected and don't have to... Take a vaccine that they uh, are opposed to because of a medical reason or because of a religious reason. Those stu- those exemptions are still there. Also, um, uh, some language there that say if you've already had it uh, at least for a period of time, then you don't have to have that. You don't have to have that vaccine. And uh, uh, you know, it's one of those things that uh, there are people on both sides that didn't think it went far enough their direction. But at the end of the day, I feel like we came up with something that's going to protect Hoosiers and uh, still have, you know, employers have the ability to kind of control on some level what's going on in their workspace.
0: Uh, lawmakers passed a $1.1 billion tax cut package on the last day of the session, uh, which will gradually reduce the state's income tax rate from 3.23 to 2.9 percent uh, over seven years. What were some of the concerns that Senate Republicans had with House Bill 1002?
3: Well, it, we had uh, conversations about this going on for months prior to session even, and uh, first of all, let me say happy happy where we ended up on that bill. It was a lot of uh, discussions, lots of discussions and negotiations about what that might look like at the end. And as you know, there were a a series of tax uh, cuts that were in that bill originally that came over from the House. Um, My initial trepidation and most people in the Senate's trepidation was a couple of things. Uh, first of all, that we have an obligation out there in some state debt, in particular the pre-'96 uh, Public Employee Retirement Fund, which at this point sits at about $9.8 billion. That's a big number that is currently unfunded. Un, uh, and uh, we've been paying down on that for years now and, and making great progress, but it's still nearly $10 billion. So any excess that we've got, we wanted, we're very serious about making sure that it went at least some of it to that. And uh, the other thing is... We didn't want to get to a spot where we cut taxes now because the revenue coming in. But in a couple of years, all of a sudden, the economy takes a hit and we've cut too deep and we have to pivot. We don't ever want to be in that position. And uh, some of the concerns there were, uh, you know, the headwinds in the economy that while they're not manifesting themselves right now as far as the state's revenue goes, because the state's revenue is fantastic, and continues to come in over projections. But you know inflation is a serious problem and seems to be getting worse. That has a bad effect on the economy, of course. Um, probably the second biggest issue that causes concern for me is our workforce challenges. There's not a company in the state of Indiana, I don't think, that isn't finding it a challenge to hire workers. And that's going to slow the economy a little bit. So when all this cash burns off uh, that's in the economy right now, a lot of it from federal dollars, I just have a concern about what Indiana's economy will look like on a sustainable level and will it take a dip or not. So we wanted to be really careful with that. Um, so the two taxes that we did are, one, the income tax cut. It'll take us down to tied for the lowest income tax in the, in the nation of those states that have an income tax. And um, in addition, there's a utility rate tax of essentially 1.5%. It's not quite that. That everybody pays, from the person, uh, the largest company, to the person in their apartment that has a light bill or a phone bill, they pay that tax as well. So everyone's going to feel that benefit.
1: Now, of course, the the business personal property tax was one thing that ended up, you know, that tax cut not going through. Do you see that coming back as an issue down the down the line?
3: Yeah, I think it's going to come back. It's going to be part of a conversation. It didn't go through, and there are a couple reasons for that. I mean, you you think about um, the policy of it, and it's it's not necessarily bad policy because you don't want to tax, uh, you know, companies' investment. It kind of takes an incentive away. And uh, uh, but nevertheless, it's been in place for a long, long time. Property tax is a nice tax to have for local governments that are trying to, you know, make new projects or do any bonding at all because property taxes are stable. They kind of they kind of just stay level which makes people who are going to buy those bonds very comfortable and so that's used a lot for uh, for bonding. So to the extent we ever do a change there, we'll have to make sure that we keep in mind the impact that will it will have on local governments because it will bring in probably bring in less money for them. It depends a little bit on whether those local governments are up against the tax caps or not if they um, um, if they're not up against the tax caps then it'll cause an increase for those folks who aren't getting the benefit of that business personal property tax and a lot of times that might mean residences so we want to be really careful on the impact that has and know going in exactly what it's going to do sure Uh,
0: one of the more controversial moves this past session was reinserting the language to remove uh, handgun permit requirements into hb 1296 uh, this isn't an uncommon procedure, uh, but given the subject, uh, a lot of people, including some lawmakers, were upset and questioned the process. Uh, do you think that they were rightfully concerned uh, about how this measure was um, put into a non-related bill, uh, kind of last minute?
3: Well, n- not really. Let me explain it, I suppose. I mean, sure. uh, you can't ever say that it wasn't didn't have a fair hearing. In the Senate side alone, uh, Senator Tom's bill was not the one that passed. But in the first half of session. Got two or three hours of testimony on that issue, and it was a it was a kind of a permitless carry type of an issue. His bill was, but the wording was different than the one that ultimately passed. And then when the House bill came over, ten uh, seventy seven. It probably got north of nine hours of testimony in, wow. one, in one hearing, so lots of testimony. Law enforcement, people testified for it and against it. And at the time, what happened is the chairman there, um, I appreciate everybody on that committee because that, they put a lot of hours into that, but the chairman had to put in an amendment that was essentially a strip and insert, which you can't do according to Senate rules, at least in the way that it was done and because we were right up against the deadline because the next day the committee uh, report deadline was at 12:30, we couldn't do anything else with that bill or even run it through rules because there wasn't time to uh, have uh, have a have a meeting and then get that committee report done so the bill essentially died i said that day uh, to the press because i didn't want this to be like we were trying to sneak anything around that it was our intention to find another home for that we put it into a Senate bill. The House put it into a House bill and conference committee, after um, uh, after it had been fully debated on both sides, and um, then had a debate on the floor. So, there is a you know, some people had a concern with the process, but I think it uh, it was certainly, and my hope was it was transparent. Lots of people had the ability to testify about it
1: couple other bills that also got hours of testimony. Um, we're kind of, we're calling them kind of cultural issues, but of course the, the transgender athlete, K-12 athletes and, um, the, the divisive concepts, if you will, that, that education bill, um, what we thought was interesting about those, particularly the trans athlete bill, was that the ACLU came out multiple times and said, "We're going to sue if this goes through." And so, you know, we're curious for you as a lawyer when you hear those kind of statements, how does that factor into your kind of processing of a bill and whether or not it should go forward?
3: Well, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time thinking, "Well, someone's going to sue; I can't go forward." What I do when someone does say that, though, I, I try to be a little more analytical. Do we have this bill right? If mm-hmm. somebody, especially the ACLU, says they're going to sue, you know, they're, they're probably not bluffing. They do that sure. a lot. And they, they're, they you know, a guardian for the laws in the way they seem, think they ought to be. And so uh, it makes you go back and take a look and uh, talk to the drafters and legislative services agency to think, did we get this right? Is there something we're missing? Uh, is there any way we can make this better so that we're not have a, some sort of constitutional violation that'll make this law get, uh, uh, get overturned? And uh, so that's my, analytically, that's the way I try to think about it. Uh, but you know, there are, there are certain types of bills that are going to get, uh, challenged after we get done every year. And that's just part of the process, I think.
1: Sure. And so what do you think about how we ended up? Of course, the, um, divisive concepts bill died in the Senate, I believe, and, um, transgender athletes did go forward. I, I don't think that was amended in the Senate, if I remember correctly. How do you feel about where that ended up?
3: Well, I think, uh, I think we, um, I, th- I feel pretty good about, um, about it. The, uh, the transgender bill, first of all, you know, you talk about the lawsuit and it's sort of interesting. I'm sure that'll, that, you know, someone's going to challenge that. Sure. Probably the ACLU. And if you, if you look at Title IX, there's two ways you could look at that as to whether or not, um, um, uh, Title IX is helpful or hurtful there. The bottom line is what, uh, what the authors of this bill were trying to do is say that um, uh, you know men and women biological uh, men and women are not similarly situated and uh, it's in order to allow women this is how it would you could use title line to, to make this argument in order to allow more women to get on the sports field you don't want biological boys competing with them sure. and uh, that's the uh, that's the angle that was taken I think that an awful lot of people in the state not everybody at all, I agree with that angle, and um, but I'll tell you, in that conversation, I had lots of folks in my district and otherwise come in that have a, uh, a child that is transgender. I, I learned a lot, had some great conversations with those folks, and uh, am smarter now because of it.
1: Interesting.
0: What are some pieces of legislation you're proud of that might not have gotten the attention uh, as some of the other issues you know we've kind of talked about?
3: Uh, that's a great question, and uh, um, and uh, because there's always those. There's so many bills that get all the headlines, but a lot of the meat really just doesn't get much attention at all. And the one I would point you to this year is Senate Bill 361. It's authored by Senator Ryan Mishler, who happens to be chair of our Appropriations Committee as well, but a really competent guy. And... Um, uh, it is uh, kind of a retool of our economic development tools that we have here in the state of Indiana. We've watched recently as Tennessee, North Carolina, and recently Ohio got an Intel, a $20 billion investment um, in, um, o- over in Ohio that Indiana kind of wanted. And, uh, but the way that that recruiting of business is, is uh, happening has changed a lot over the last couple of years. It happens so much more quickly. Uh, boy, it used to be nine months or a year or more of courtship. Now it's 60 to 90 days, and uh, the incentives and the investments are done differently. So we had to retool what Indiana was doing, and Bill, Senate Bill 361 does that. The One thing I'll say, I, I think that has the, it will have the biggest impact of anything we did this year. There's a lot of industry, really innovative industry, looking for a home right now. I think a lot of that industry is kind of looking in the Midwest uh, as we've seen them land other places because we have a reasonable tax structure and a, uh, a kind of moderate regulation. Uh, we've got regulation, but it seems to be reasonable, at least we hope so. We want it to be. And uh, so they're looking in the Midwest and Indiana needs to be in that conversation. We already are, but uh, these these changes that we made will allow us to continue to be in that conversation and probably here in the next in this calendar year of 22 be able to uh, talk about some nice successes of some companies that are coming in with some great investment and opportunity for Hoosiers.
1: So of course, Indiana has a super majority, has for a few years now, um, Republican Party being in, in power. Is that, a, is that a good thing? A bad thing? Does it make your job more challenging? I mean, how does that work for you? Uh, uh,
3: you know, it is what it is. Sure. And uh, obviously, on a political level, you think, oh, it's a great thing. Sure. You know, it's not easy, though, as a, as a leader of a caucus of 39 mm. at all. And I suspect the, the speaker would say the same thing over sure. in the over in the House. Uh, uh, the, the one thing I'll say is a couple things I'll say about it. One is when you have that and you uh, because you know, with the supermajority, it means obviously the Democrats can leave the chamber and we can continue to do business. We don't ever want that to happen right. and uh, um, because we don't make as good a laws when they're not there. The thing, the thing I'm grateful for is they come to work every day. They sit at the table. They make arguments. They make suggestions. Um, we don't have any system where... If they have a good idea, it has to be authored by a Republican. They can mm-hmm. author a bill, and if they convince people it's a good idea, it becomes law. And we've been able to do that um, several times the last couple of years. Uh, so I'm grateful that they continue to work with us, and we want to work with them to make the laws better. But but it does become a challenge. The, the main The main thing I'll say as far as a challenge is that because the Democrats are limited in number at this time, and I recognize that's a pendulum that switches back and sure. forth, but um, uh, there's more of – and more of a emphasis on the fact that our caucus has to govern Mm ourselves because we probably have the votes to put up some really bad bills and we need to make sure that we don't do that. And it takes a little bit of discipline to make sure that happens. Sure.
0: Um, I believe it was last week our Republicans uh, sent out a letter requesting Governor Holcomb call a special session if the US Supreme Court uh, partially or completely overturns Roe v. Wade. Why wasn't this addressed uh, during the session?
3: Well, you know, I think this will be of a lot of interest to the folks who are listening to this. Um, There was a lot of conversation about what should happen, and uh, uh, some states considered, and in fact Indiana considered some trigger language to say if Roe v. Wade is overturned uh, by that Mississippi case, then um, just make it automatic that, um, you know, abortion is is further restricted. Uh, That sounded like a really challenging process to me, because as we all know, um, you don't overturn, the Supreme Court doesn't overturn a case in a very black and white term. Sometimes it's really complex, and uh, and these issues are very complex. And We don't pretend to know exactly what the uh, Supreme Court will do with it. So trying to draft legislation that would take into account anything they could do sounded like a nightmare, frankly, to me. And uh, I just thought that would create lots of problems. So that's where we ended up. We asked the governor to, uh, to take a look. And if, in fact, uh, Roe versus Wade is overturned or in large part gives Indiana opportunity to make a policy change, then bring us back in so we can do that sooner rather than later. But uh, again, the idea of trying to craft something that would account for anything that the court could do just sounds undoable.
1: Has the governor indicated whether he'd be open to that to a special session?
3: Yeah, I've had a conversation or two with the governor about that, and I think that he is. He is a uh, um, uh, is a pro life governor, and sure. uh, I think he is uh, would be inclined to do that.
1: Sure. So, finishing up a uh, short session. Um, what are the benefits of a, a shorter session, and you know, do you see a preference for between short and long? Or are they just different? They're, they're very different yeah. and
3: every session has a completely different complexion than the previous one at least sure. in my experience the nice thing about a short session is you get out by the middle of march and you can get on to other things like your law practice but um you know this was originally uh, done uh a short session it's not a budget year we do a budget every two years and so i think maybe back in the 1970s they decided all right we need a short session just to deal with some emergencies that come up in the meantime and uh you know, according to the bills that got filed this year, we had over 900 emergencies. <laughs> I can say with quotes around it. Uh, we've just gotten into the habit of filing almost as many bills as we do in a long session, but it's 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 so much more compressed that we don't nearly hear as many and, and pass as many necessarily. But it's a very fast, frenetic pace, and uh, has a different feel to it than the long session, which moves at a little bit of a slower pace. Um, there are some people that. Uh, even have filed a bill that say to take the short session away. Uh, There's some support for that, not probably enough with the idea, because really it would be a little difficult to not be able to come in during the uh, even-numbered years and make some adjustments. But uh, maybe the answer is we try and have some more uh, restrictions on bill numbers, about the number of bills that people can file, so we make sure that only the ones that they deem most important get filed. It might make it a little easier for us to vet those through a short process.
1: Did this year feel more normal after last year's COVID session?
3: Yes, it did. Uh, Last year was uh, challenging uh, because of, uh, sometimes, and somewhat because of the issues that we addressed, but also just because it was harder to navigate everything, harder to do committee hearings, harder to have debates on the floor, harder to see people, lobbyists, and the public that wanted to come in and see you, and that all added of stress on top of the normal stress of a session. So really, really happy to get back to uh, the way we've done business in the past. Yeah.
0: What's something that you would like lawyers to know about you in the uh, Indiana Senate?
3: Uh, uh, so, you know, um, I don't know. i tell a little bit about my, my practice. Like I said, I do a lot of municipal law. I represent a local bank back home. And, uh, you know, that the, the experience of being a lawyer for a number of years before coming into the General Assembly, at least to me, was invaluable. I mean, I, I, I came in and I, it, I felt like it gave me um, the ability to read bills and kind of digest them a little bit more quickly because I was used to reading the Indiana Code. And, um, and maybe because of the, just the day in, day out, being in court and meeting and, and helping clients, I, I felt like I had... Um, I was able to kind of figure out fairly quickly what the bill was going to actually do and maybe avoid some unintended consequences. So I, that was been has been a nice advantage for, for me, I think. And, um, uh, so it's just been a good fit. Something I've really enjoyed being able to balance the two of those things over the last 10 years or so that I've been in office. Absolutely.
0: Well, that will do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Indiana Senate pro tem, Rod Bray for joining us on this week's episode Uh, For past episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast and the latest news in the Hoosier legal community, be sure to visit theindianalawyer.com.